Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favorite jewelry brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Down there is a place at the furthest part of the tomb from Beelzebub, which is known not by sight, but by sound of a stream that descends there through the hollow of a rock, which it has worn in its winding course and gentle slope. The leader and I entered on that hidden road to return in to the bright world. And without caring to have any rest, we climbed up, he first and I second, so far that I saw through a round opening some of the fair things that heaven bears. And thence we came forth again to see the stars. These are the final few lines of Dante's Inferno, when he's about to follow Virgil, his guide, onto the shores of Mount Purgatory. In Inferno, there's no concept of light or time or seasons. There's only darkness. And the first thing we notice when we reach the shores of Mount Purgatory is that light reappears. The concept of day and night reappears, the stars reappear. And this moment is one of my favourites because it marks the moment where light is visible again after many, many cantos of darkness in the Inferno. Virgil and Dante emerge to see the light. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. Hello, I'm so excited to say that this episode is slightly different to the past ones. For those following the Great Women Artists Instagram, you will have seen that for the past six days, some of the most exciting young names in art celebrating black culture have been taking over the account. So to honour this takeover, this episode and the next one will feature interviews with all six women about their practice and work. Today, I'm so excited to say that we are speaking to the Lagos-based artist Nengi Amuku, art historian Elayo Akinkube of Black History of Art, and London-based artist Michaela Yearwood-Dan. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the brilliant Lagos-based artist Nengi Omuku. Having completed both her BA and MA at London's Slade School of Art, Omuku's work is inspired by the politics of the body and the complexities that surround identity and difference. 
Painting within a Western traditional context on which oil paintings are made on canvas, it is only in recent years since learning about the vast history and traditional weaving in Nigeria that she now paints on sonyon, a traditional Nigerian cloth. Exploring perceptions of race and gender, protest and notions of collective mourning, her work primarily deals with the coping mechanisms the body develops in order to be present. Seeing her work as a psychological portrait of the human body, her starting point always asks, how do you paint the mind? Nengi Amuku, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and I, I love your page as well. It's an honour to be here, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. likewise, I love your art so much. So honestly, the pleasure's all mine. So I mentioned about this very beautiful and poetic question that really, I think, resonated with me and so many others who read this question that you ask yourself at the start of making a work, which is, how do you paint the mind? I mean, can you tell us about this and how you aim to capture this in your work? So it started for me, really, when I left Nigeria and moved to England. I was born in Nigeria and grew up here up until I was 16. And then I moved to England to study art. But first, I went and did my A-levels in Dorset. So it was like extreme culture shock. Oh, wow. I know. I was there for two years. So imagine leaving the tropics and the humidity and the heat and then moving to <laughs> the English countryside. And Dorset is quite and, different. And <laughs> it is very, very different. Very. And having to wear a kilt in the cold. And nothing about the experience made any sense to me. But it was interesting being there and meeting new people. But then what I realized soon after I arrived was I was the only well black African student in the school at the time and I, I was met with like a lot of curiosity <laughs> which I found fascinating <laughs> and I think that's what sort of started my journey in thinking about how do you paint the mind because it was an all-girls boarding school right and I would have some students come up to me and say so how did you get here from Africa or they would ask do you live in a tree just some sort of like strange questions now thinking about it is like extremely hilarious to me but at the time I found it extremely troubling and I was just like oh what are the gosh. perceptions that we have yeah. so the, the whole thing about painting the mind kind of started from there I decided to sort of like leave my skin, like I mean mentally, and try and enter into the eyes of the person that was perceiving me as other and try and imagine what they saw. So that's how that journey started for me. And I started picking up the words like exotic and making like word associations, exoticization. And then I started thinking that maybe they saw me as some sort of like exotic bird of paradise. And my mom is a horticulturist. So there's this very colorful plant that presents itself in the tropics. So I started making these multicolored, very furry, feathered creatures almost as a coping mechanism to address the situation with a sense of humor. Yeah. And also sort of like to protect myself. So those bodies emerged as a sort of like cocoon and hiding my true identity and trying to understand how I was being perceived. So that first, it was mostly through entering into somebody else's eyes and wondering how they saw me. But eventually the body evolved as I matured, as I became less impressionable. The fur was shedding quite literally in the, in the paintings. Like I, I would start like opening up that cocoon and you see explosions of this sort of like multifaceted body emerging out of the feathered colorfulness wow. and starting to I was starting to think about how I see myself as a multifaceted 
person, right? I'm a black female artist from Nigeria and I've just had so many multiple experiences that have shaped my identity and who I am. And I wanted to express the complexity of my being through painting. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, I was just so drawn to your work, completely transfixed by them. And I think it's this feeling as well that your work gives. I think that there's some kind of familiarity with them. The faceless figures also kind of allude yes. to, they could yes. be anyone. They're not a sort of certain person. I'm thinking yes. definitely the kind of last yes. year or so with your work. Yes. So it was sort of this process of coming out of that cocoon phase and starting to feel very comfortable and confident in my own skin, right? I started wondering if I emerged out of this cocoon, who am I? How will I express the notion of myself? Like, how will I present myself to the world? And it gave me like lots of sleepless nights and the image of it scared me. But in the end, what I wanted to get at was some sort of image that wasn't really about one person. Yeah. It was about painting the emotions and the complexity and what it means to be human and what it means to like have experiences that can be universal. So that's pretty much where this new body of work is coming from, right? It's about exposing yourself sort of like naked to the world with all your emotions and all your drama and letting people empathize. So I, I develop connections with whoever sits for me, whoever tells me their story. I try and listen and try and translate that experience into paint without necessarily hinging it on the identity of the individual, but finding ways for the story or the narrative to be felt universally. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have people sitting for you then? Yes. So sometimes when people sit for me, I see it sort of like a therapy session, right? It's not like you're, you're, <laughs> you're sitting and um, painting a likeness of you. It's more like me listening to the stories that you have. And I don't even have to ask people, right? They just sort of like come up to me and start telling me things about their lives and, and their struggles. And all of the stories feed into the work. And I face the the physical, the eye is this way, the nose is this broad, to get to like an emotional connection so that the viewer can connect to the story of the individual, whoever it is. And so this idea of kind of like being present as well, that's something that you always kind of want to explore in a work. I mean, what is it about being present that yes. you want your work to deal with? Yes. So I guess from my earlier work, when I so just started painting with oils, I was thinking primarily like how do I cope with my own difficulty and how do I present myself to the world and then you know come back the next day and then I realized it's much bigger than me right there are lots of people that have issues that they are dealing with and they always have to show up be present and just like present themselves basically in this kind of way to the world and it especially changed for me when I moved to Nigeria I didn't paint for a whole year because I needed to sort of like absorb the environment I was in. And I was in Bodija and I saw this woman walking in the middle of the road in this beautiful fabric that we identify as African, but which really isn't. It's wow. Inka Shonibari has discussed this in, in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was walking right in the middle of traffic at rush hour. Oh my God. Like she owned the street. <laughs> Amazing. Right? Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Like she owned the street and it was completely regal and it was completely powerful. Oh, and she was wearing multiple rings on her head. And, and at that point, I was confused by what I was seeing. But eventually I realized that she was mentally ill and she was walking in the middle of the streets because I don't know why, but immediately I felt like a deep connection with her. Wow. 
And I was trying to understand what brought her to the position where she was, really. And seeing her haunted me constantly. And that's when the whole idea of painting the mind evolved beyond myself. And I started like looking for ways to understand what people are experiencing and in the best way I could translate that into paint. So, so Bodija Eris, I think I painted in 2013. And based off of just that one encounter with seeing her, I didn't take any pictures. I just went back to the studio and tried to recreate what I saw. And it's what even, you know, drew me to the charity hospital rooms and how yeah. they try and use art as a form of therapy yeah. for patients to sort of like alleviate the experience of being stuck in your mind yeah. and just sort of like as, as a way to escape. So my recent work started from meeting this beautiful woman in Bodija and, and just feeling a, a sense of helplessness. So she was beyond communication and I felt that there could be a solution and I don't know anything outside of art. That's why I sort of aligned myself with hospital rooms and their work and studying how they use art as a form of healing. And then I collaborated with this woman, Hannah Umilani, in Nigeria to start a mental health charity as well, where we go into psychiatric wards and renovate the buildings and use art as a form of therapy wow. to help patients come out of that experience. But we've seen studies that art has a healing power. So we're just using the best tools we can. And then I want to ask you about the sort of faceless aspect of the figures as well, because why then do you like to morph these faces as if they're, you know, another world or something? Yes. So I could have a person come and they're telling me their stories and the struggles that they've had. And I'm drawn to those things because, and I think maybe I'm trying to fix it through painting, but trying to translate them into something that's generally quite universal because we all feel depressed once in a while. Yeah. We all feel yeah. anxious. And these are feelings that transcend race, transcend culture, yeah. that transcend all of these things that we use to classify ourselves as human beings. And they just become part of like a, a human experience. Yeah. So the work is about making human connections through painting, driving empathy through connections with the arts just so that as a society, we feel more people's pain. We begin to act as a collective, as opposed to dividing ourselves by race, culture, gender, or whatever other categorization um, that we've chosen to use. Totally. And I love the fact that, you know, I've, I've sadly never seen one of your works in real life, but from images, you know, I can really even just get a sense of this touch as well that you have. You can really see your hand on the <laughs> canvas, which I love. Oh, thank you. For example, for, for the, the phone care one, right? Yeah. So it's if she's a friend of mine and she was just telling me about a generic difficult day that she had. So I was thinking, how do you use colour to speak about an emotion? Yeah. How do you use mark making to talk about a feeling of sadness? And how are you able to connect with a viewer? So even if the viewer isn't a black woman, how is she able to connect with this feeling yeah. that Funke felt yeah. that day through painting? And so for me, when a work works is when anybody, no matter what gender, no matter what race, can come to a painting and say, this is how I feel today. Mm. That for me is, is all I need yeah. to know that a painting has communicated with whoever was meant to see it really. But I love the way that you have a sort of set colour palette, yet you are mixing these very kind of opaque blacks with these 
very soft blues and oranges and, and that you really kind of get a sense that it's that real feeling in the paint as well. But I also want to ask you yes. about your backgrounds as well, because some are like Funke suspended in yes. what looks like a kind of nondescript background, but yes. then others such as Untitled from 2017, they're in this kind of ocean-like <laughs> paradise. <laughs> so that's another thing. It's something that sort of started in school, right? I was painting these bodies on one hand, and then I was painting these, I was just calling them scapes. Yeah. I was imagining a version of the world in which when a body enters, the world sort of like rises up to meet it or reacts to the presence of the body. So for example, nearing, which I made in 2019, you have these two male forms approaching into the space. Yeah. And in my mind, the space is very female. And the space sort of like gives way and becomes a tornado and is confronting this foreign body in the landscape. So there are some that are very pared down and they're just like a focus on a body, on an emotion. But then others are sort of a little bit more complex in the sense that they're an interaction between bodies and space. It's a different way of imagining the world. Mm. No, I just, I love them so much. But one work that I was particularly drawn to <laughs> was Gathering as well, which I thought was just absolutely beautiful. Ah, uh, yes. So I started it in January and it was when Corona started and I, I wasn't having studio visits anymore. I wasn't meeting people. And I was thinking about if my work is about connections with people and speaking about emotion and speaking about encounters and I don't have any people <laughs> around yeah, me, yeah. what happens next, right? So I started looking at archival images of Nigeria and for some reason at the time I was drawn to, to images of protests, collective mourning. Yeah. And I came across this image of this man and this community had sort of like gathered around him to just collectively mourn a loss. And I was so moved by the image that I, I was basically crying oh, <laughs> through no, the painting. Of course. Like, cause I think just generally, just in the way that I'm uh, wired, I, I just develop emotional connections with people, with things. Yeah, I'm the same. And, and I, I was just so <laughs> moved. I'm so glad you understand because I'm starting to feel very weird. No, 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 but, no, um, I totally so, get it. Um, <laughs> Art is all about emotion. Right? <laughs> I was so torn by this image and I was just thinking about like how, you know, things pass us by so quickly. You, you hear about disaster that has, has happened here and through the media, photography has its role and it's very powerful, but you almost can't feel what is happening because it's just happening so quickly. Yeah. So yeah. almost through painting, I decided to engage with an image for a sustained period of time and see if I can pull more out in terms of like an emotive connection with a loss out of that image. And then I looked to more images as work I'm in progress about protests and how people collectively gather to speak about something or to express their emotion or to say they're upset about something. All of this painting was happening before Black Lives Matter and everything yeah. that's now happening in the world. Yeah. So I don't really know how to express like the fact that the painting suddenly had a lot more meaning yeah. for me when everything sort of like George Floyd and everything just sort of like the world started going into chaos. On my Instagram, for example, I just pulled forward an image of a man just trying to remember a simpler time when I had observed a man sitting, having a haircut. And I pulled that image back just in celebration of 
men and a black man and male identity. And so now I'm just continuing, but there's a greater sense of urgency. It's not something I'm pulling out of an archive. It's something that's happening now. And I'm thinking, does my strategy change? Like, where do I go from here? But I guess we'll see. Yeah. No, that work, male, I mean, just... It's just incredible, the sort of simplicity in this green gown that he has over himself and the kind of weight that you can feel under the body as well. Yes, yes, yes. I walked in a very, very dear friend having a haircut in the office and he'd fallen asleep. (laughs) So there's just so so much simplicity (laughs) about that moment. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm so intrigued as well with your process because obviously I'm also intrigued with the fact that, you know, you lived in the UK for such a long time. You did both your Slade, Mm -hmm. BA and MA there. And then you came back to Nigeria and your sort of painting technique sort of physically changed. So can you tell us about the work that you made in the UK and then changing your style to actually using Sanyan? How did you discover that? Yes. So, well, first of all, the Slade was the most incredible experience that I ever had in my life. (laughs) I sort of like stalked the Slade for the longest time. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you did your BA and MA there. I know, I know. It was like, I can't get enough. I was about to do a PhD then I was like, Nengi, stop, go back home and... (laughs) No, you have to come back to London and do one. (laughs) I know, right? I know. um, So imagine going into the Slade and my first personal tutor was Philida Barlow. I mean, like, come on. No. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. She's a legend. So the Slade was, and then I was tutored by people like Lisa Milroy, who... Incredible. The greatest lesson I learned from her is not to be afraid of negative space, right? And I think yeah. it's things that have heavily influenced work like Funke and Male, where I'm okay to just present the body as is, take it as it is. When there's no hierarchy in the slate, you know, the tutors treat you as their equal. And they're just sort of like helping you along to find Amazing. to find what it is you're trying to express. So I see myself as a sort of like semi-permeable thing, right? I want wherever I am to sort of like pass through me and influence the work. So it didn't make sense for me, this, the way in which I was painting in the Slade, for it to be sort of like this continuing stylized way of expressing myself. So when I moved to Nigeria and I was having very, very different experiences, I became fascinated with fabric. Fabric as a way to speak about identity, to speak about a past and to speak about a body. So I started yeah. asking people in every different part of Nigeria I went to to please give me their, their traditional fabric because there's so many different types of cultures within Nigeria and I would paint it to sort of speak of identity. And then I came to Lagos and I asked people, oh, please bring me your traditional fabric. I want to see it. I want to experience it. And then this friend who happens to be the sitter for male, he's a very curious individual, came to me and was like, oh yes, I have this fabric actually. And he showed it to me. And I remember the exact moment I felt Sonia. And I just had, it was like a spiritual connection, right? Because it feels a bit like linen. It looks a bit like linen, but it's a raw, unrefined silk. I started doing research around it and I found out it was a silk that comes from moths that was spun in pre-colonial Nigeria. And it has its own 
complete history. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to paint this. I did quite a bit of research, but still the oil painting can remain archival and can stand the test of time. So I put it through stress tests. I made sure that the priming process wouldn't let it crack. And the stretching process, even because it's stitched in panels, right, that it wouldn't tear. So that's how my relationship with Sonia began and I completely abandoned canvas. And that's also part of why I'm not afraid to leave parts of the Sonia exposed in the paintings because it's a celebration of Nigerian craftsmanship. Yeah. Totally. I also just love the video that you sent me of your studio assistant priming. It's so beautiful. It's like an artwork in itself, him priming it. I was like, oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Nengi. This was such an incredible insight into your work. And we'll have to speak again when your solo exhibition is up in London. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist from now or history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be? And what would you say to them? (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. So... I, the woman needs no introduction. I feel like there should be drums somewhere, <laughs> drum roll. Yes, it yes, would yes. definitely. Oh goodness, it would definitely be without a doubt Wangechi Mutsu. Yes. Oh my like, gosh. Yes. Where do I begin? Right. Like I don't even know. I'm just. I'm just sort of like speechless. I have goosebumps. You know, just sort of like talking I got about goosebumps her. all the way in London. <laughs> I'm not going to go into some amateurish description of her work, right? Because like, I'm, not, I'm not qualified. So yes, I have just been inspired by her work since I was in the Slade. I'd never seen it in person until the Armory show a couple of years ago. Just being, understanding that it's okay to look at the body differently. Yeah. That it's okay to have a different perspective and painting the body in, in a different way from like figurative in a traditional sense yeah and the wonderful thing about this whole what you've just asked me is <laughs> she was invited to speak to us in nigeria <gasps> and us humble servants went to listen <laughs> to and bask in her glory and Tokimi wow. was so gracious as to introduce me to the <gasps> angechi mutu and basically i died inside <laughs> Um, I think I would. I just passed out. So I just asked her some irrelevant questions, right? But inside, in my my actual mind, I was just a child sitting at her feet, like listening to her awesomeness. And she was so gracious and she was just so giving. And it was one of the highlights of my life so far. Oh my gosh. I know that experience. I once met Lynette Yadamboete and I just didn't know what to say to her. I think she must have thought I was so weird. (laughs) I was like, hi. Oh my goodness. That's another person. <laughs> I just don't know what I to know. say. If, to I, them. if I meet her, I would actually, I will probably die as well. Like, I've never been inside, so starstruck before. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh! Well, Nengi, thank you so, so, so much, and we can't all wait to greet you in London in November. I am looking forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the great Nengi Amuku. What an incredible insight into her work. We are now listening to Alayo Akinkube of A Black History of Art. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast today is the founder of the brilliant Instagram, A Black History of Art, Alayo Akinkube. 
Born in Lagos, Nigeria, Alaya, who was 19 years old, is currently an undergraduate history of art student studying at the University of Cambridge. And it was in February this year that she created A Black History of Art, an account that highlights the overlooked black artists, sitters, curators and thinkers from Carrie Mae Weems's Kitchen Table series to Betty Saar's Black Girl's Window. This account spotlights work from the 1800s to the present day. Now in her second year at university, Alayo has been involved with the Decolonize Art History Group, which has been seminal in working towards diversifying the Cambridge art history curriculum. Alayo, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you, Katie. So excited (laughs) to be here. (laughs) I'm so excited to speak with you as well. Uh, Now, I know that you're in the middle of the exam, so I won't keep you that long. But I mean, the response to your account has just been astonishing which I think completely proves that there is just this total hunger to learn about all these subjects and artists and I'd just love to start by asking you you know what prompted you to set up this account? Well it was kind of a frustration that I had at not seeing any or many black artists or sitters really looked into in my degree and I could probably count them on one hand and I've had loads of messages from ex-art history students saying they can't even think of any black artists that they study. So I set up out of a frustration and a desire to kind of self-educate and to learn about black artists because it's something I wanted to do and if my degree wasn't going to facilitate that then at least I could do it on Instagram and share it with other people. It's interesting it's kind of like oh my gosh it seems crazy that you have to take it upon yourself to do that. Yeah I mean I will say that I did a contemporary art course this term and that kind of gave me a lot more insight into black artists from the 20th century and current like living black artists but apart from that there's been very little kind of reference to any artists who are black and other ethnic minorities. Yeah we need to see more of it so you know was art history something that you were always interested in or is it a recent passion I mean you grew up in Lagos I mean were you surrounded by a lot of art there? So I've always been interested in art. History of art I was really lucky that my school offered it as a subject for A-level And I really, really enjoyed it from the first lesson. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking about the lack of diversity or anything like that. But I just really loved the subject. And um, growing up in Lagos, I didn't really grow up going to galleries very much. And I think that the Lagos art scene is kind of booming now. And there are a lot more galleries. But when I was younger, they weren't really on my radar. But my maternal grandfather had quite a, like, diverse collection of 20th century Nigerian art. Oh, wow. So Brillo, Mwamu, Ladi, Kwali, and a few others. And he had sculptures and paintings and all kinds of art. So that was probably my first kind of real experience with oh, amazing. art. amazing. So I think my first kind of exposure to art was not through the Western museum setting. And I was exposed mainly to West African art, which is nice because it gives me a different perspective when I'm studying Western history of art. Definitely. That's also something that we need to see more about. So I want to talk about this takeover because also you've really inspired me because sitters as well is such an interesting topic yeah. because I think sometimes when you look at art history, you just think about the artists and actually you don't often think about the subject, which is an unusual mm. thing because it's actually like, you know, what are we looking at? But your first post is about Marie Guillemin Benoit portrait of Ingress, which from 1800 is a stunning portrait that is housed in the Louvre. You mentioned that this was what got you into the history of art. I mean, can you tell us about this work and how you first came about it? So I've never actually seen the work in person and I would love to, but I was first introduced to it through an image and I had a really good teacher at school called Dr. Beatrice Harding and she introduced me to the painting and she encouraged me to take part in the 
articulation competition and I chose this portrait in the grass and I talked about it for 10 minutes for that competition. Oh wow! Yeah so that was my first real kind of non-school engagement with history of art and apparently she was recently identified as Madeline but I don't know if that's absolutely confirmed but <laughs> the Louvre had a recent exhibition and they think that she was a slave turned servant called Madeline so that's really exciting to know that her name yeah but I remember thinking at the time which was in 2017 I think in my first year of sixth form that she was just depicted with such dignity despite the racism of the time and I also remember drawing a link between her and Delacroix's figure of liberty and liberty leading the people which I yeah. studied at school and with my limited book, art historical yeah, knowledge yeah. at the time I made that kind of connection so that was my introduction to that painting <laughs> yeah no it's amazing and, and you mentioned as well in the takeover how there was this incredible exhibition at the Wallach Art Gallery in at Columbia University in New York but also the Musée d'Orsay which focused on black sitters as well yes so that was curated by Denise Morel and a Cambridge professor actually introduced me to her work and to that exhibition but unfortunately I couldn't go because it was in Paris <laughs> but it was fascinating I got the exhibition catalogue no it's amazing and I, I was sadly not able to go either but I saw so many people post about it and I'd love to get the exhibition catalogue but I think you know highlighting sitters is such an interesting avenue to explore you also mentioned the work of pre-Raphaelite Joanna Boyce Wells who captured the sitter Fanny Eaton I mean can you tell us about her so Fanny Eaton was a Jamaican immigrant to England in the 19th century and her mother was likely an ex-slave and her father is not on her birth record so she was probably illegitimate and I first discovered her through a drawing of her in the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge by Simeon Solomon and he's a pre-Raphaelite artist and I wrote about her for my first year extended essay and I discovered that she's featured in quite a few paintings including the Joanna Belt Voice Wells study and also Simeon Solomon's Mother of Moses and Rossetti's The Beloved, which is quite well known in the Louvre, but she's in the background. So that was really fascinating to learn about. And I was so intrigued by her because in my education, I'd only seen stereotypical red-headed pre-Raphaelite models. And this image was someone with almost Afro-like curls and they were depicted with such truth and there was no kind of sense of idealization or anything. I just thought that was magnificent. No, I thought it was so, so interesting. And actually it's just made me, again, like sort of I said earlier, maybe you actually really want to explore sitters so much more as a just a concept in itself. So the account obviously, of course, focuses on a myriad of black artists ranging from some more historical ones to artists working now. I just love to ask you which of those artists have, you know, spoken to you most, influenced you most? So I think one artist who's definitely influenced me a lot is Lynette Yadom Boachu. And I had seen some of her work at the Tate, but I was first introduced to it through social media, as I think a lot of people are introduced through to art these days. Yeah, through yeah, social yeah, media. yeah, definitely. But I love her work, and I recently did a post on her, The Hours Behind You. And <laughs> I think that Lynette Yadom Bachi's works are so kind of moving to me because they present Black figures in a way that is kind of removed from the context of the world and kind of removes socio-political context and just focuses on the figures and their interaction with each other. And I think that is something that I hadn't seen before when I first encountered her work. I think also the aesthetics of her work. I think Solange Knowles cites her as an inspiration for her music videos and they're actually just extremely beautiful. Also, Faith Ringgold. 
and yes. was fantastic. I unfortunately wasn't able to go to her retrospective at the Serpentine, but I just want to find a way to view her work somewhere as soon as possible. <laughs> I did some research on her in my on the contemporary course at uni, which was also really eye-opening. So I think what I really love about Faith Ringgold's work is just her use of colour, her use of text in a lot of the tapestries, and just kind of this combination, the synthesis of storytelling and storytelling through words and storytelling through images. And I feel like every time I look back at one of Faith Ringgold's works, there's something new or something that I didn't notice before. And her works are kind of like a feast for the eyes, I think is how I'd put it. They are. They're incredibly textured and meticulous and I feel like you can just stand in front of one for ages and also you can learn so much yes about her art but also about history and I think what makes her work so relevant now is that work that you put up the other day the flag is bleeding which is of this mother with two of her children in front of this American flag that was bleeding and just like I love how art can be so relevant I feel like you know you can be in yeah. any part of history and you can look at a Faith Ringgold from the 80s or the 90s and it can speak to yeah. now I feel like artists have this incredible ability to just have this like it's just timeless in a way yes exactly <laughs> timeless I feel like what artists do is kind of represent truth yes. and I think that that's why good artists works are so timeless and that they always speak to you no matter what decade or what era you're in and Rotimi Fanny Kaladay, he's not a woman, but he was a 20th century photographer and he's of Nigerian origin. And his photographs kind of focus on the AIDS crisis and just the experience of being a black Nigerian man in the West and queer. And yeah, they're just very kind of surreal and I found them very moving. Yeah. So, you know, I've read that in part of setting up this account was also to self-educate by researching aspects of art history due to the lack of it in the field of art history as an academic discipline. I mean, tell me, I mean, you mentioned earlier about this contemporary course that you're doing, but what does your course specifically focus on? So the history of art course at university is very much rooted in Western art history. And we are made aware of this, which I'm grateful for, because I think if I wasn't constantly aware of the fact that everything I'm studying is in the Western tradition, then I would be less likely to question it. And I would just take it as a given that this is art history and this is the art that matters. So in terms of Black art at university, I didn't really have much exposure to art that was created by Black artists in my first year, but we had the option to narrow down in second year and I chose the contemporary art course and it featured so many Black artists. And mainly we looked at artists from North America and from Britain who are Black, but it was kind of my first step into appreciating the art of Black artists in an academic way. So some of the artists that stand out from that course were Glenn Ligon, Lorna Simpson, Howardina Pindell, and also Isaac Julian, who did Looking for Langston. Yes, I love that film so much. Yeah, and it was probably a few days after watching Looking for Langston with my year group that I decided to start the page because I was so inspired. I'd never seen anything like it, and I was surprised that (laughs) it had existed for this long without me ever being exposed to it so definitely my university course helped with this and then also of course my own desire to learn about artists of my own ethnicity. I think that's great that your university course is doing that I think it's been about five years since I left university and I think in that time people are really looking and saying actually hang on 
we need to teach this very balanced perspective. The fact that you hadn't seen Looking for Langston and Looking for Langston, is, not only does it address such a seminal time in history in the sort of Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, yeah. but also goes back to, you know, when Isaac Julian first made it in the 80s and what's happened since then. I don't know if you saw this incredible exhibition called Masculinities at Barbican. It's obviously had to shut. So it had to shut because of COVID. So correct. Yeah, I had intended to see it, but I had to come back to Lagos after the COVID nightmare. <laughs> but they showed it there, and it's just—it's just stunning. So I do want to ask you because you are part of a group at Cambridge called Decolonize Art History, and can you tell us a bit about this and how this came about as well? The Decolonize Art History group existed before I started at Cambridge, which I'm really grateful for, and I got involved with it. Um, from the first day and they did an open letter before I got there basically asking for the course to be diversified and for there to be more black artists and non-western artists included in our reading lists and the department responded really well and they still respond today so we're constantly updating our requests and we have a meeting with the faculty once every term to discuss this. And the course has actually changed as a result of the Decolonize Art History Group's request, which I think is insane. So the second year approaches course, which teaches us about theory and approaches to history of art, has been expanded to include non-Western art, non-Western artists, and questioning the canon. And we had a decolonizing art history day. and. Yeah, that was incredible because it didn't exist the year before. So I think what's amazing is that the Cambridge History of Art Department is actually very responsive yeah. to um, our One of the our oldest demand. institutions <laughs> in the entire world and they're, and they're being yeah. responsive. I think if anyone's yeah. listening who was part of an academic faculty or anything, <laughs> I think take note. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And also I, yeah. I, I love the fact that this is a very urgent thing and you know, it doesn't yeah. matter if it's not on the course last month yeah and we're seeing this month, immediate you know? change yeah. exactly immediate change which sometimes in universities it feels like it takes years for change to happen so this has been incredible to be a part of amazing well <laughs> i encourage everyone who's a student to write to their art history teachers and as this is the great men artist podcast we always do ask if there was a female artist maybe alive now or maybe from history who you'd most like to meet who would it be and what would you say to her i think it would definitely be lois Milo Jones and I would probably ask her about her experiences touring West Africa and how that influenced her because I'm always intrigued to see how African art can influence people who live in the West or people who live in the diaspora. Was she American and she traveled around? So she was American and she studied in Paris and then she had I think two tours in her life. Wow. Africa, West Africa specifically. And how do you feel when you're in front of her work? probably inspired i know that's very cliche but inspired amazing thank you so much alive for coming on the podcast today thank you so much for having me it's been amazing Thank you all so much for listening to Alayo Akinkube and I urge you all to follow A Black History of Art now it's time for the brilliant Michaela Yearwood Dan I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the sensational London-born and bred painter, Michaela Yearwood Dam. Known for her incredibly beautiful, playful, vibrant and sometimes thick and pastoed canvases that explore themes around class, culture, gender and nature, Michaela's work often depicts a variety of topics based on observations of society and the self. 
completing her BA in fine art painting at the University of Brighton before residing back to London. Michaela was an artist in residence at the Saraband Foundation in 2018 after being spotted at New Contemporaries back in 2017. As a contemporary artist working in a historically renowned medium, Yearwood Dan's work focuses on method and technique and borrows traits from Western, Japanese and Chinese historical painting and craft. Her vibrant and luxurious style that as a viewer consumes you with beauty and life is also underpinned by an expansive repertory of cultural signifiers, borrowing freely from millennial culture, blackness and feminism, such as texting, acrylic nails, gold hoops, carnival culture and a lush omnipresent flora which evokes growth and alludes to the intimate, infinite possibilities of a diaspora. Solo shows have included at Tiwani Contemporary in 2019, Saraban Foundation in 2019, New Contemporaries at Baltic Gateshead, Block 336 in London, and many, many more. Michaela Yewadan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, considering there's a lot going on in the world right now, but I'm hanging in there and trying to find moments and pockets of positivity. Yes. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. As you know, I'm a big fan of your work and have been lucky enough to witness it in the flesh on many occasions. So just for our listeners who might be new to your work, I'd just love for you to describe it for us. So I make large scale abstract paintings that have reference to botanical and flora, as well as having inscriptions of writing and text within them. Currently, I've been also adapting my practice into looking at pottery and incorporating this aesthetic within pots and ceramics yes I've been loving those ones so much have you just been making them on lockdown yeah oh god um (laughs) I bought air dry clay on the first week of lockdown before that I'd been to three ceramics classes I'd never ever used clay before in my life and yeah just (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> was like cool I've got YouTube and I've got air dry clay and I taught myself how to make pots oh my gosh well they're amazing <laughs> thank I've been you. following them so closely like absolutely <laughs> thank gorgeous thank so you. I mentioned in your introduction your works you know don't just adapt techniques from different cultures but they also physically blend them much of your earlier work that I remember visiting last year at Saraband mm-hmm. actually fuses these urban scenes next to a botanical one I mean can you tell us about you know what it's like to blend cultures and heritage in your work and why you do that yeah well I suppose I'm the product of blended culture I am the daughter of Caribbean immigrants with a very strong Caribbean presence within the home, but then grew up in South London and an area of South London as well that the schools I went to were actually quite predominantly white. So there was a lot of code switching going on in my early years. And my secondary school was very much more London and diverse, thank God. But then I suppose when I got to university, I felt very displaced. I was put into an environment where there was a huge lack of diversity and I felt myself propelled into wanting to explore my identity because I was constantly having to explain myself and explain my identity. I remember at that time I joined a very popular dating app. (laughs) (laughs) That was very popular during 2013-14. And I 
found so many men in particular questioning where I was from, telling me that I was exotic. What? <laughs> it was wild. <laughs> I remember my artist statement for my degree show, I actually quoted a conversation I had with a man who asked me where I was from. I repeatedly kept on telling him London and different variations of London. So like London, no South London, I was born in Tootin. Like and he wouldn't accept any of it. And I was like, well, you know, my parents, if that's what you're asking me, are they from here and then? He was like, oh, that's that's a fire mix. I love my girls exotic was literally <gasps> the terminology. What? And that was, I guess that was like in the most like fetishized way that I was facing that sort of idea of confronting my culture and my ethnicity being a explanation that, I then just realised that I was going to have to not so much perform it, but refuse to perform it, like refuse to make it like my whole identity. So I'd even find things within crits at university if I ever spoke about topics around being black was always silence in the room and no one really knew how to discuss it with me. So I started making these works that juxtaposed these images of the Caribbean because the Caribbean is so often idolized as well as this like beautiful, lush, gorgeous place. And then images of more urban environments. But what I did was also take them both from the same class perspective. So I would take images of the tinned roofs, houses in Barbados where my dad's family are from and the houses stacked upon each other in Grenada where my mum's family are from that are all painted in colourful colours and I put those next to images of like guys eating in a cafe or women outside of a kebab shop and girls dancing at carnival and within that it's neither two cultures are being idolized people choose to read one side of it as being like this idealistic location that they want to be in and that would be holiday hotspot but in reality neither of them are I guess the height of desire I suppose for me carnival is like the height of desire especially now I can't go (laughs) but you know like a pie shop in East London isn't really the height of desire (laughs) And, and, you know, you put it against some, some, like, beautiful palm trees and everyone forgets to look down in the piece and see that it's actually against tin shacked houses. So it's all about sort of perception. I refuse to use faces within those works as well. And it was a body language and the dialogue between cropped images of body language to remove a direct identity because especially with me focusing on then using black figures I didn't want there to be an over-assumed identity attached to the person because I often found that that was a thing that was continuously placed upon black artists this thing of like having to identify and speak for a whole community and people really trying to overread things Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Long-winded answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I, mean, <laughs> but I mean, your work in the past year or so, so the work that was at your show at, T- at Tiwani, for example, I mean, mm-hmm. it the lushness and it, it's just so overpowering as, mm-hmm. as well. You know, it's so beautiful the way that you just conjure all these different elements. I mean, just the swathes of colour, everything's just wrapped up and it also feels 
very personal to you as yeah. well because when you are confronted with one of your works it is this abstract work but then once you start looking I feel like I can look at your work for, for ages because you start finding these hidden scribbles or hidden bits of text or mm-hmm. I know that they're, they're so dense and layered I mean how do you want the audience to react to it do you think about that much yeah I totally think about it even so there was a big aesthetic sort of change between including figures in my work and then going to this more abstract version of self that I felt very self-conscious originally as to how my work was going to be read then and especially within the community that had so beautifully supported me being the black community I thought that people might feel a bit like I'd abandoned them having stopped painting black figures which was great that they hadn't but it was definitely a fear because I think it was the structural societal fears that I was having this idea placed on me that people might not feel that I want to represent, even though I suppose my whole being as an artist is political. So with these works, they originally started after a crappy end of a on and off forever thing that I had with a person. And they they came from all these notes that I was writing in my phone. And I just started painting freely just quite pastel beautiful colours and leaves and stuff and I remember writing the words prick down the side of a painting (laughs) thinking about said ex I I was very sad as well like you know but it was a funny thing to have written then I started reading over the notes in my phone and I realised that there was a lot of quite powerful material there so I started engraving them into the works so they weren't necessarily visible to the passing eye like you had to get up and close to these works and that continuously what went on through a small body of work that I made at that time called Love Letters to Siri oh yeah yeah well yeah that's when we first we first was that in the show One English Pound yeah exactly so we spoke about those works back then and from that it was this idea between what I want to show and what I don't want to show. And I suppose I had some things literally like black Sharpie on top of the painting in like capital letters. So they're really visible and you can see them and have other things that will be like carved in that I'm not inviting you to necessarily be able to read all of it, but you know, you can take a few words from it. You can get the gist of the sentence. And, you know, I often get (laughs) my gallerist, messaging me being like what does this say and like close up (laughs) the picture and I just will reply back like wouldn't you like to know like it's yeah they're like kind of like diary entries and it's it's just a bit like yourself as a person like there are things that you want to give out and want to let people see about you and there are things that you want to conceal like when we're talking about like physically how I want the audience to receive and read my work it's within that I want them to be able to pick up different elements and I want some things to be really obvious and I want some things to be hidden and discreet. Yeah, but there's just such, I'm not a nosy person, but I love to kind of really actually look and see what those words say because I think they reveal so much. And actually Mm -hmm. you have something like the stone rose, which said you will not be forgotten in quite large text, but then Mm. at the side, you then notice that it says, be the rose grown from concrete. Mm. And I don't know, all these different sections in it, just there's something so beautiful sort of, conjured up on it yeah well those so as far as my work sort of progressed like you said in your introduction like I take lots of references from culture pop culture my own personal being and I was in the studio that day listening to Biggie 
and <laughs> and I honestly then realized I just sort of thought to myself I was like you say you're a biggie over Tupac kind of girl, but you've not actually <laughs> ever really given Tupac a chance. You just like New York, so <laughs> you decided Biggie's your guy at a very early age. It was popular in school to like Biggie, so that's what you decided to do. So I, Tupac has a poetry book that he wrote called The Rose That Grew From Concrete, like metaphorically speaking about his success coming from quote-unquote a concrete jungle but basically just like a hard harsh environment and the fact that like a spoken word like poetry raps he says something along the lines of when you see a rose grown from concrete even though it's probably going to have loads of like tears and scars and deformities to it you don't look at it and pick up on those things you see it and you think wow look a rose was able to grow from concrete in that moment I was like god shit maybe I am a Tupac fan (laughs) am I allowed to be both like wow so you know you will not be forgotten yeah written in that piece kind of alludes to obviously him it alludes to every rose grown from concrete from everyone who's lost their lives too early and our favorite musical stars like Amy Winehouse and it's anyone who's had a bit of a rough journey but they grew and so I suppose that piece is kind of like a I got you to the audience and maybe also maybe like a bit narcissistic towards myself thinking like wow look at me I'm doing well I've got a solo show coming up at a gallery I've admired for ages (laughs) I've got gallery representation in my mid-20s wow but really I felt it was just commentary on discovering those poems yeah. yeah. No, I think it's I mean it's just so beautiful. And then another work I love this. You actually in the takeover you had this brilliant picture. It was must have been your opening. You had a bottle of prosecco. prosecco. In your mouth. So that was actually at full English opening. It was a group show. Yeah. The prosecco. They were only serving beer. I don't drink beer. <laughs> so I went to Tesco. I thought you were like it's going to be mine only. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean this work is absolutely huge as well. Yeah, it's like 8 foot or something crazy but this also includes your edition of text as well but it says mm-hmm. you know there's nothing great about britain but i love you so i mean can you tell us about this yeah so of course the show was called full english when date eagle who curated the show approached us brexit was happening you know everything political that was happening in the world and you know the islamophobia in the uk and also like this sort of great sense of national pride so for that piece was thinking a lot about my kind of relationship with the UK. And one of the things that always makes me laugh and I have to correct myself on is if I ever meet someone from abroad and they ask me where I'm from, I always say London. And I never, ever say that I'm English or the UK. There's this great sense of London identity. And there's a great slow tie song called Nothing Great About Britain. That's where that quote came from. And the thing at the bottom where it says, I love you so, that's the sort of to do of my feelings towards this country and I love it so much. And obviously London is part of that. And I can't really imagine myself living long-term anywhere so far removed from London. I don't hate it here. I don't, and I've, I can't hate it here. It's my home. And there's writing also in the middle of that painting. Oh yeah. Which is, like I said, like with the revealing and concealing, it's much more delicate and less 
obvious to the eye and it reads something along the lines of no matter how much you try to hurt me I will always love you and it's kind of speaks about political notions around Brexit with what happened with Grenfell with the campaigns when Boris Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn running their campaigns at the time of creating it there was all this feeling of like I continuously keep on having to see things and read things which allude to my existence as you know a black woman a woman just a black person not really being accepted within this society that I love so much but I'm gonna still love it I still love it there are so many aspects of it that I love and people within it that I love and it's kind of crap that's (laughs) trying to hurt me (laughs) bring me down (laughs) when I still love you England (laughs) sort it out please Seriously, I remember, I remember seeing you on the day of the election in Italy. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, we just arrived. I was about um, the other day. Arrived in Italy, and like that day, I'd already had about three arguments with random strangers. <laughs> but tell me a bit more about your process as well, and also color, because I think you know, color is such a kind of obviously big part of your work. Mm. It's abstract color yeah. at the end of the day. I mean, how do you kind of create? one of these works what's your process I feel like unlike a lot of adults I'm still very much in the child mindset of I have a favorite color I kind of want to know what people's <laughs> favorite colors are um what's yours green I green the dark green I any green green is the best <laughs> color <laughs> I just dated a guy who told me that I looked good in green and I honestly thought it was like his opening to chatting me up and I was like that is the best compliment I've ever received in my life thank you so much I think colour plays such an important role in my work in a way that I know it plays that role but it's not as heavily considered as I think you would expect being that it's so essential I don't like white plain canvases I find them really stressful and daunting so the second a canvas is made and primed the first thing I do is add a colour and I would sort of just look at the colours and be like what kind of colour am I feeling like today and that will be the sort of base tone of the piece. A lot of your works look like they're primed with black paint or something. Yeah, lots of them are primed with black. That's both because I think it works really well with colour on top of it, especially when yeah. I'm carving back and taking things back. Also, if I can't think of a colour to put on the base, <laughs> I just think, you know, what's always great? <laughs> black. <laughs> it's some fantastic colour. <laughs> and I've always got a lot of black acrylic paint lying around. I've read lots of books on colour I remember in school it kind of reminds me a lot of like the British education system just like like every year drawing a colour wheel for like the front of your art books yes we always had that in primary school yeah like like, for me it lasted up until GCSE but (laughs) I think I know what colours pair well together yeah and how they make you I suppose, feel in the Western sort of semiotics around the idea of colour. If my works are sort of red heavy, there's ideas of danger, but there's also ideas of romanticism. And there's uh, ideas that allude to like the flesh. But then if you took that over to, I suppose, China, those are lucky colours and like celebratory colours. So I guess you take on the kind of meaning and how people want to read them. But for me, when I'm actually making, not a huge amount of 
thought process going into why I use the colours I use. It's kind of intuitive. Yeah, but you choose also to use oil and acrylic. Yeah, I prime in acrylic for the base. I use rabbit skin glue primer, which I always feel a bit naughty about because the animals. <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> I, I'm not a vegetarian, so I don't know why I come off feeling almighty about that one. But I prime that and then I always do like a ground of acrylic paint and then I sort of work on top of it with oils. Sometimes I'll go back in with little bits of acrylic in certain areas, but I predominantly use oil for like the main bulk of the painting. I love your works that are uh, the ones that you made in 2019, which are also kind of just one colour as well. Oh yeah, the monochromatic stuff. Yeah, they're yeah. absolutely beautiful. And one of the works, Breathe, you actually chose to highlight in your takeover. Mm-hmm. Uh, this work is absolutely beautiful. I mean, just one of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen in my life. Can you tell us about this work and how it's resonated with you? Yeah, so this work, when I made it, had kind of like no, no emotive depth to it personally. So some of my works, I make them and they are like me processing things and they come out as like cathartic releases and it genuinely didn't really feel like much to me I had made an all green painting and I decided that I'd like to now make an all blue painting that was sort of the depth of it when I finished it I had to title it I don't really like leaving my works untitled I looked at it and I kept on thinking about blue and I was like I should name it after something to do with blue so I literally named it after Blue Cantrell's and Sean Paul's song, Breathe. Like, that is... A great song. Yeah. And, which I was obsessed with when I was younger. And I used to have, like, the same little hat that Blue Cantrell had. Yes! And I was obsessed <laughs> with that hat. There's so many childhood pictures of me wearing that I love that, like, that year hat. six disco. Yeah. There's literally... There's a great one of me as a child wearing that hat at a, a zoo party. And I have a, I'm holding a snake across my shoulders like Britney Spears. Oh my gosh! An asymmetrical top on and cargo pants. (laughs) So this is what I mean. Like that was all that that piece was being titled of, and I finished that piece last year, May twentieth. Well, because I looked back on Instagram and I uploaded a picture of it on about May twenty second, and then you know it wasn't until you actually asked me to do the takeover recently that. I was looking at, like, you know, what picture of my own work would I like to include within that? Because I was using the space to highlight people whose work I really adored rather than my own. And I saw Breathe and I just thought, wow, okay, that just took on a whole new meaning. I read a blog post that a friend and mentor of mine wrote yesterday. And it was in relation to what's going on with... George Floyd's murder and also to do with coronavirus and a moment that she had within that where she couldn't breathe because she literally had a panic attack and she convinced herself that she had the virus and then I just started thinking about this recently how for the past six months of this year from now past you know from George Floyd's murder as a world The idea of being able to breathe has been so heavy on everyone's mind, but also this background thought. It's one of the the main 
things that takes people's lives with the coronavirus being that people have to be on ventilators because they're struggling to breathe. They're literally unable to breathe. It's been a thing that we've all been continuously thinking of recently. You know, I I know when the coronavirus first started, my family and my friends were all sending around videos of like breathing meditations because that was like one of the big things was like making sure that your airways are clear and like make sure you up your intake of citrus and this, that and hot fluids because no one wants to end up on a ventilator. The world's running out of ventilators. And then on May 25th this year, George Floyd is killed and is struggling to breathe. And as a community, as a black community, it's a huge loss. As as the, the world, it's a huge loss. And it's also like thinking about breathing has been it's 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 our life source we know that and this piece had no no significance to me in terms of like emotion beforehand and now it holds this whole new depth and it being in blue the color of the police officers it's just I think for me, a lot of my work doesn't actually hold a huge amount of um, emotion to me personally. Usually it's the making process and what I was feeling when making it that holds the emotion. But when I look at the piece afterwards, I'm quite good at removing that from my own personal attachment. I, it's now the ownership of the audience and, you know, sometimes clients who buy the work. And with this one now, I feel like it's just added on all this emotion to it that wasn't there before and is now so present and yeah it's sad it's a sad work now (laughs) yeah yeah no I think thank thank you for sharing that I think it's I think it's I mean I'm looking at a picture of it now and it's just uh holds so much Mm. yeah (sighs) oh Thank you so much, Michaela, for sharing all of this and your and your fantastic work. And Thank you. you know, I can't wait to see more of it post Corona and more of these pots and <laughs> yeah. God, oh, life post Corona! Imagine that. <laughs> Let's hope we see lots of changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, urgently. Yeah, exactly. As is the Great Women Artists Podcast, we do always ask our guests if mm-hmm. there was a female artist yeah. from now or from history who you'd yeah. most like to meet, mm-hmm. who would it be and what would you say to them? Okay, so I'm kind of semi-cheating on this one because I because <laughs> I've met this person before, but it was I want to do over. So that's okay. that's why. So I when I met this person before <laughs> It's about stars in their eyes tonight, Matthew. So when I met this person before, all I could say to them was, oh my God, I love you. Because it was at a party and I had drunk all the free champagne on offer. (laughs) And they hugged me and um, I... And she said, oh, sweetie. I told her I was going to see her tomorrow in a talk. Really, really rushed. And she said, I'll look out for you. So who I'd like to meet... (laughs) Tonight, Katie. <laughs> Who I'd like to meet <laughs> is, <laughs> is Carrie Mae Weems. Yes, I, fantastic. Yeah, I just I've got to I've got to do a do over. I want to I want her to tell me 
all her sage wisdom about life and the art world and her experiences and love. She's in a very long-term marriage, which I always admire people as a hopeless romantic. I just want to hear all her wisdom. I watched her in a talk with Goodman Gallery and Kuds and I try. He's a South African artist and it was in relation to his body of work, We Live in Silence. And Carrie Mae Weems just basically spoke at him about his work. And it was just incredible to witness. And it it, it just felt like, you know, when you watch Oprah interviews and she just speaks <laughs> at someone and you just think, wow, I just want someone to bless me with all that like knowledge and warmth <laughs> and love. It felt like that from the audience and I can't imagine what it felt like for him to be the one actually receiving it so you know it's very selfish that I just want Carrie Mae Weems to tell me (laughs) that I'm great but also within like telling me about how great she is because she is fantastic I couldn't think of anyone else I honestly couldn't (laughs) think of anyone else I tried I googled other people um, no, no, no. <laughs> no, there was no one else. I thought I'd actually because you don't want to meet. You don't always want to meet all of your icons, like you know. You, but once you've, I've seen her in action, being an icon. That, yeah. I'm sure it will happen. I'm sure it will happen. Thank you so much, Michaela, for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 28th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Nengi Amuku, Alayo Akinkube and Michaela Yearwood-Dan. It was such an insight into all their work and practice and I urge you all to look into their work. I will be linking everything and all their details in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the great Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.